Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Okay, the teaching text for today comes from Psalm 36, 5 through 9. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, I hope that you are well today, that you're coming in encouraged, or maybe you're coming in and you're feeling a bit uh, beaten up by life, as is sometimes the case. I don't know if you are, are coming in today and you're excited to be among your people, or maybe you're here and your blood pressure is elevated being in a church, or maybe just knowing the topic of today, you're like, oh, what's going to happen I don't know if you believe the things that we believe or if you vehemently disagree with us, but this morning, I don't think that anybody is here by mistake, that the Holy Spirit has been the one at work drawing us in toward Jesus and toward each other, and this delights the heart of God the Father. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus, you're welcome. I'm glad you're here. So uh, last year, I went to a conference. Uh, It's called the, the Q Conference in Nashville. It was really good. And a a demonologist spoke, a demonologist. And uh, sensing the discomfort in the room when he began to speak, the first thing that he said was, don't be afraid, Jesus is in control. And today, uh, for our sermon, we're going to take on one of the most emotionally, relationally complex topics that's out there, one of the most uh, generationally polarizing topics out there probably the most controversial topic we could discuss in the church, and that's same-gender sexual relationships. And uh, as we start this sermon, I want to remind you what the demonologist said. Uh, Don't be afraid. Jesus is in control, and this is his church. So um, if this is your first Sunday at Cornerstone, bless your heart. Uh, This is going to be certainly the longest sermon that you're probably going to hear at Cornerstone and and the most, among the most uh, culturally sensitive sermons uh, that we're going to talk about. Now, why are we giving a Sunday uh, to talking about this at all? Uh, The immediate context for this conversation comes from our journey through the year of the Bible as we're reading through the whole Bible together as a church. And this week, for the first time in Leviticus 18 and 20, we heard the first explicit teaching in the Bible on same-gender sexual relationships. And we could skip it and pick an easier topic, which some of you are like, man, I really wish you'd done that. But honestly, I think many more of us are curious, genuinely, what does God have to say about this? So rather than skipping it and moving on to something a bit easier or lighter, we're going to take it on right now. Uh, The second reason we're talking about this is the topic of human sexuality is one in which there's a a ton of confusion in our culture. And many conversations are happening and have been happening on this topic for a very long time. And bedrock norms like uh, gender and identity and attraction uh, are treated in many ways as being antiquated. And the church, which the Apostle Paul called the pillar and foundation of truth, 
has the opportunity to speak with clarity to a confused and questioning culture. And the third reason I think we need to take this on is that many people in this room know someone who's gay or experiences same-sex attraction. It could be a son or a daughter, a niece or a nephew. It could be a friend. It could be a coworker. It could be you. And you're wondering, what on earth does God and the Bible have to say about all of this? And maybe you've heard some things. Uh, We know we have folks in the church uh, who are gay, folks that we love, which tells us this is not an abstract issue. This is not an out there in the world issue. This is an our issue, a church issue, an inside the walls, the community of the church issue. And I don't want the only people talking about this publicly to be pundits on cable news or protesters with picket signs who lack the wisdom and the mercy of Jesus Christ to be our official spokesperson. Uh, We want, the church deserves to hear our best teaching, our best thinking from sources that you trust. And so this morning, my goal is to give my most humble, earnest, merciful and courageous gospel-shaped response to the topic of same-gender sexuality. And I want to set some expectations because I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going to be looking at the clock all morning. You guys don't want to leave at 1.30. So uh, I want to set some expectations for what we can reasonably cover in our time together this morning. This is a first conversation, and I want you to hear this. This is a tone-setting conversation for our church. I want us this morning to hear God's word, and I want us to capture God's heart. But from the start, I have to confess, this is a topic in which the American church has limited moral authority. We have been less than stellar exemplars of well-ordered sexuality, and, and we've not obeyed adequately Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Divorce rates are in the church are just as high as they are in the culture at large. Addiction to pornography is rampant, and adultery is, is far too common. We were guilty of being silent on the AIDS crisis until it was popular to care. Uh, And we're guilty of the idolatry of nationalism, of treating this topic firstly as one to be lobbied and legislated against rather than than one to be prayed through and studied and dealt with within the local church. We've put spotlights onto the sins of others, and as Christians, we've been slow to repent of our own sins. And time and again, we've either failed in our silence and ambivalence toward the same-sex-attracted Christians in the pews who are already feeling isolated, uh, or we're loud and legalistic, lobbing Bible bombs and issuing public statements instead of mercifully journeying together with our brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle differently than we do. We've lacked love. We've failed to show empathy. We've embodied a kind of self-righteousness that has convinced a new generation of people the church is not for people like me. I was texting with a friend the other day who volunteers with LGBT youth, and he said, these kids hate the church. They openly ridicule it because of how deeply they've been hurt. And so what do many gay kids do who grow up in the church? As soon as they get of age, they hit the road. They want to have nothing to do with it. And were I to detail the historic treatment of this group of people by the church, it would make your stomach turn. And it's especially heartbreaking in light of the God we worship. In the text that we just read, it says, In him is the fountain of life, and in his light we see light. It's heartbreaking. And so for those of you in the room, and, I, and I'm confident there will be people who listen to this later online, uh, those of you who've been hurt by the church, by leadership, by pastors, by priests, or by other people who bear the name Christian, I'm so sorry. 
Now, in order to overcorrect against many of the failings of the American church, uh, some Christians have swung the opposite direction, taking a totally affirming stance in part because they don't want to be associated with the mean-spiritedness and the cruelty of some Christians. They don't want to be associated with that kind of self-righteousness. And I think that more Christians have changed their views on this topic because of other mean Christians than anything else out there. And it's my conviction that for all of us, the most important thing that we could do related to this subject is to meaningfully explore the questions, what do the scriptures actually teach about human sexuality, and how can we most faithfully live in the way of Jesus in our day and time? And so my goal this morning is to examine what the Bible has to say about homosexuality, to put that conversation into the context of the local church, and then to gather around this table and remind ourselves of the story that makes us a family, okay? Uh, I want you to know, I have prayed and studied and prepped more for this sermon than any sermon I have preached in my entire life. Uh, And I share all of this in humility and in hope that it helps us take forward steps in our mission to more faithfully be and cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Before we hop in, in, I want to comment on the terms I'm going to use. I want to talk about uh, our context for this conversation and our posture for this conversation. All of the terms in this conversation are heavily laden and mean a lot to a lot of people. And so uh, gay, homosexual, same-sex attracted, like there are a a pantheon of words out there that are very meaningful to people, and I'm going to get it wrong, okay? Uh, I'm going to say, just tell you for ease, I'm going to say gay or same-sex attracted. I'll say homosexuality in a limited amount. You'll hear that. Uh, But just know these terms are not exhaustive and not perfect. The second thing I want to say is about our context. I'm a pastor of this local church. I'm not a politician. I'm not legislating for any course of action out there. I'm talking about our life in here. The Apostle Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's not my business. This is an in-the-church conversation. Uh, And as as being true, we want our posture for this conversation as people who are learning to be like Jesus. We want to have a posture of humility and charity and empathy and curiosity and mercy. And I urge you, in your conversations with other people after this sermon, as you're texting about how to go or you're reflecting on what you thought, I urge you to avoid sarcasm and to embody a gentle spirit. Assume today that God has something to teach you. Be a learner. Okay? Let's pray before we carry any further. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Take us to Jesus and make us like him to the glory of God the Father. Amen. How do we decide what it is that we think about any given topic? What informs the the circuitry in our brains that helps us decide uh, what it is that we think about things? And historically, Christians have identified four chief resources that help inform our view on practically anything. Uh, It's scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Scripture is very simply the Bible. It's God's God's word. It's uh, it's, uh, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Doctrine affirms that it's trustworthy in all of its teachings. That's scripture. Tradition is simply what does the church teach? The church has been around for longer than any of our lifetimes. Jesus had 12 disciples who taught the, the, the teachings of Jesus to others. 
how has the church believed Scripture for the last 2,000 years? There's reason. God put a brain in between our ears and we're supposed to use it. It's good to use your brain as a Christian. And then finally, we have our experiences. We have personal experience that informs uh, just how we see the world based on what we've been through. And I want you to think and reflect for yourself on how you think about any number of topics. What is the weight that you assign to each of those topics as you think about homosexuality or any other topic? Uh, you know, what's informing you? Uh, is, it, uh, is it your experience of being gay? Is it your friendship with somebody who's gay? Is it disliking how some people treat gay people? That would be experience. Uh, is it a reasoned argument? Is that, what's is that what's driving how you think about this? Is how is your theological tradition informed the way that you think about this? And then finally, have you examined what the Bible has to say? As we're thinking about this topic, we need to learn to think about our thinking uh, and, and the, the weight that we're assigning to each of these resources. Now, I believe for the Christian, all of these are critical. All of these are invaluable. But I also believe that Scripture should have the first word in the conversation. Scripture should be regarded as the primary resource, a means by which we encounter the God who is the fountain of life and in whose light we see light, that which is true and good and beautiful and best for us. So what does the Bible have to say about same-gender sexuality? And before I hop into particular texts, I want to look at the four main chapters of the biblical story as a whole, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration or renewal. What does human sexuality look like in each of those four chapters of the biblical story? Chapter one, creation. God made a good world. About every element of God's world, he said it was good, 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 very good. And in Genesis 2, at the creation of humanity, uh, God makes these creatures in his image. Genesis 2, the Lord God made woman from the rim be taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then the, the author says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, it's worth noting before we proceed, and this is skipping ahead to the chapter on redemption, that this text in Genesis chapter 2 was actually affirmed by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. When he was asked about divorce, he pointed to God's ideals for human relationship and human marriage. This text was affirmed by Jesus. About this text, an author named Mark Yarhouse had this to say. He said, Genesis affirms that God created two genders, male and female, that he wanted sexual intimacy to be kept within heterosexual unions. Creation is particularly important because it reveals what life was like before the effects of the fall. It was a state that God said was good. Therefore, Christians should look at the creation story as having important implications for sexuality and sexual behavior. And then he goes on to say that, that the Genesis account and the Bible as a whole teach that there are four principal purposes for sex. The first is that sex in marriage is a life-uniting act. That's said in Genesis 2, the two become one flesh. It's a life-uniting act. There's a spiritual dimension that's bigger than the act itself, that's transcendent and sacred. 
The second purpose of marriage from a biblical perspective is it's the means by which new life can exist. Now, not all sex ends in pregnancy. Uh, Some people are infertile or unable to have children. Some people choose not to have children. But sex is the context in which... uh, Life happens. Life is created. And God said, according to that Genesis 2 norm, it's to happen in heterosexual marriage. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Point 3. The third purpose for sex is it becomes an object lesson for Christ's love for the church. And in the Old Testament, Yahweh's love for Israel. And when Israel went and flirted with other gods and worshipped idols, God likened it to adultery. It becomes a teaching point for, uh, for God's love for Israel, for Christ's love for the church. And then fourth, it's intended to be a source of pleasure, something to give delight within a context of God that God defined. And in fact, there's a book in the Bible, Song of Solomon, that's dedicated uh, to the celebration of sex. And I think we're going to read Song of Solomon in May or so. I think we're going to have Sexy Sunday or something and talk about that. <laughs> this is chapter one, creation. And sorry I didn't warn you, you have to give extra clicks for that one. Chapter two leads us to rebellion. Rebellion, as a result of the fall... We engage in behaviors in a way that disconnects them from their original meaning. And so work is no longer just about uh, co-ruling the earth with God. It's about finding an identity. I'm a pastor, I'm a parent, I'm a firefighter, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant, I'm whatever it is for you. Food is no longer about just meeting the needs of your bodies. It's about, in some ways, escaping from this world. I'm talking about like hammering through a pint of ice cream when you're feeling depressed. And sex is no longer just about a life-uniting, procreating enjoyment of pleasure within God's boundaries. It becomes something other and something less. We, we get the idea of personal sexual gratification, which leads to you know, the objectification of bodies and pornography and sex without commitment, exploitation, rape, a polygamy which never goes well. And many of us in this room could share stories of the destructive forces of sex gone awry in our world. But the reality is in the chapter of rebellion, as a result of the fall, we all have proclivities and desires and appetites that are misaligned with God's ideals. Isaiah said this, all we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. James said, we all stumble in many ways. Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a universal reality for the human race that all of us are affected by the fall, by human rebellion. And for that reason, Jesus taught us that we should be slow in casting judgment on other people, slow to condemn. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't judge or you too will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. As you think about how rigorously Uh, You condemn and evaluate the behavior of other people, the failings of other people. Are you prepared for that same level of scrutiny to be applied to you? And we read inevitably in the whole biblical story as a result of the chapter called Rebellion that one of the signs that God's purposes for sex have gone off course is the introduction of same-gender sex because it defies that Genesis 2 norm that God said was good which was also affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament and has bearing on us. This is one example of of a multitude of behaviors of ours that have gone off course from God's original design. 
As a result of the rebellion, all of us have desires that lead to our destruction. All of us have appetites and affinities that are not for our flourishing. We're under the power of sin, and we also incur the guilt of sin. And that leads us to the third chapter in the biblical story, which is redemption. With the coming of Jesus into the world, through his death and his resurrection, and through faith in him, we are forgiven and we are uh, released from the guilt of our sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. But we're also liberated from the power of sin. This is Romans. Do we have it? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We have freedom through the Holy Spirit to explore and enjoy a life of goodness and virtue and beauty cooperating with God. And this lifelong process is called sanctification, reordering with the help of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus, to the glory of the Father, all that has become disordered through sin. Again and again in the New Testament, in light of what has happened in Jesus, we're instructed to put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature. James Bryan Smith said that sin remains but does not reign. Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh that he experienced, and he never elaborated on what that metaphor meant for him, except that he had this experience that kept him humble, that kept him reliant on grace a wound that led him to constantly throw himself on the mercy of God and the provision of God for him. As a result of the redemption offered through Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are set free, we are forgiven. But we also know that the battle's not over. We struggle, we doubt, we stumble, but we stumble forward with hope and with the power of the Holy Spirit, looking forward to the day when Christ returns and we are finally and completely freed. And that leads us uh, to chapter 4, which is restoration, or I like the word renewal. This is to be consummated when Christ returns. We feast at his heavenly banquet. When we're, death dies, we are liberated from sin. God reigns among us. It's the good, good end that every story is hinting at and hoping for. So what about sexuality when Christ returns? When Jesus was asked about marriage at the time of the resurrection, when, when, when he returned, uh, he had a very interesting answer. He said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Does that mean that in the resurrection, when Christ returns, that all of our marriages are going to be annulled and, and done with? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that in the age to come, there will be one primary marriage, and that's the marriage between Christ and his church. And all of our marriages and all of our sexuality at its best is pointing forward to that future hope of the the union of Christ and his church. And when Christ returns, the scriptures teach that there will be a reward for those who sacrifice themselves in following him. This is Matthew chapter 19. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now this shows us right here that there are some estates in life that make it more difficult to trust God. Being rich is one of them. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, 
At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or husband or wife or children for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. As we talked about last week, in a similar way that the tabernacle and the sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system, pointed to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So our sexuality at its best and our marriages, ordered in alignment with God's design, are pointing to their fulfillment when Christ returns in victory and, and, and husband and wife, bride and groom, are, are together reunited. The, the Bible preserves that male-female language of Christ as the groom and the church, the feminine language, as his bride. And all of this reminds us, here's why this matters, that our first identity must not be in this life as someone who is single or married, but as rather one who belongs to Christ in this age and in the age to come. The most important thing about you in this age and in the age to come is whether you belong to Christ. Sexuality was, was created good according to God's original design. It was disordered and distorted through human rebellion. It's being renewed through faith in Jesus in cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And it will reach its fulfillment when Christ returns in victory and bride and groom are united. And we receive our reward. That's a big picture perspective of sexuality according to the story of the Bible. Now we're going to look quickly at four specific texts in the Bible. And I know that you guys, because I'm looking at your lights, your eyes, it's like the fire hose is turned on. You're like, this is a lot. It is a lot. We're going to quickly look at four texts. Hang with me. Uh, the first two come from Leviticus that we read in the year of the Bible this week. Uh, Leviticus 18. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what's detestable. They're to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, I want you to note that the text says, does not say homosexuals are detestable and an abomination. It says the act of same-gender sex is detestable. And this distinction matters significantly. Behavior is what a person does, what a person chooses to do. Identity is who a person is. And here we have in Scripture a condemnation of behavior, not a condemnation of a person. And this reflects we have choices. Now, okay, get in Leviticus. What's the context of what's going on here? Don't just isolate it. What's going on in Leviticus? Israel is on the brink of taking over the land that God had promised the patriarchs. And from the day that God rescued, rescued them from slavery in Egypt, Israel has been a mess. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And what are the people down there doing while God's in smoke and fire? They're making a golden calf saying, this is the God who led us out of slavery in Egypt. Like, Come on, guys. They're a mess. They're, 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 they're so quick to desert God. And in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God is giving Israel instructions about how they're supposed to stand in contrast to the other nations. They are to be holy as God is holy. And the Canaanites who lived in the land that God promised the patriarchs were evil. Most notably, they were guilty of sacrificing their own children to the god Molech. They were guilty. What they did was detestable, but also the way they incorporated uh, gay sex into their cultic worship. The Canaanites were the, at the opposite end of God's Genesis 2 ideal. 
And because God had a mission for Israel to bless the nations, to return the people to the garden, they had to be different than the surrounding nations or they'd fall into temptation, which is ultimately what happened. And we'll see as we read the rest of the story. That they were led astray by idol worship and they ultimately received the consequence of that, which was idolatry. They lost the land that God had given to them. Now here, now this is a, these were troubling passages. Here, I want you to note, it's not only homosexual sex that's punishable by death. There are actually tons of behaviors that are punishable by death. And candidly, as I've been reading through the year of the Bible, about a month ahead of the church, I'm like, man, I'm ready to get to a page where there's not somebody putting, being put to death for this. It's troubling. It's very troubling. It, but here's a perspective on it. Israel is a reckless teenager. And God is giving strong discipline because there's a bigger picture narrative going on. God doesn't want behaviors that will ultimately lead them astray to enter into the social script and be treated as acceptable. Now, this is a huge concept of the social script and what's acceptable. And we could study this. There are tons of books about this that over the last 60 years, there's been a deliberate effort to normalize uh, same-sex relationships in popular culture. And some of the most effective ways have not been like overt propaganda, but more subtle stuff. And I think it's been shows like, like Will and Grace or Modern Family, or even someone told me the other day that in a children's show, there's a same-sex relationship being portrayed in the show. Now look, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's not. But it is important for us as God's people who are called to be holy as he is holy to be aware of the subtle ways in which we are inoculated against caring. The subtle ways in which it enters into our script and we regard as acceptable what God does not. Um, the idea is to get things quietly and subtly into the social script as normal and acceptable and this was what Yahweh wanted to avoid. So why did he give such harsh instructions? Why are so many people being put to death? Here's an explanation in Deuteronomy 13. If you do this, then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. He didn't want it to enter into the social script. Now, one commentator said, these Old Testament texts, especially from Leviticus, are so clear that even proponents of homosexuality don't deny them. Instead, they attempt to discredit them by pointing out the irrelevance of Old Testament regulations for believers today. So, well, yeah, it says that, but we don't need to pay attention to the whole thing. It's all invalid. Folks will say, well, the Old Testament says lots of stuff, but you don't see all of us, you know, avoiding polyblend t-shirts. You know, didn't the Bible say something about that? We have to remember what Jesus said about his relationship to the law and the prophets in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So in what ways did Jesus fulfill the law? He fulfilled its images, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifice. And he fulfilled through his work on the cross and the gift of the Spirit, the intent of the law, which was forming of people who were going by the, to the beat of a different drummer. People who were different, people who could be described as salt and light, people who were like a, a city shining on a hill, which is what some of those mosaic instructions were all about, like polyblend t-shirts, was we are just different. Jesus didn't negate this stuff. He fulfilled it. And with regard to the moral and the ethical teachings of the scriptures, he actually heightened its demands. 
We can go next uh, to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 1. This is a long chapter. Uh, this is a, a brief selection. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In the broader context of the chapter, Paul is equating gay sex with idolatry. Idolatry is inventing your own way of worshiping. It's taking God's designs and twisting them according to your own uh, fancy and preferences. And Paul is equating a gay sex with, with, a, with idolatry, a kind of golden calf. And then finally, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it's worth understanding, this is not a verse about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Uh, this is not about that. Jesus' primary sermon in his ministry, go to all four Gospels, was the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a present tense reality. God's kingdom is breaking into our world and overlapping with our world. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Paul addresses those people who say to God, over this part of my life, I'm the boss that those people are missing out on the full and the abundant life that Jesus offers now. And if they're refusing it now, they're going to refuse it in the age to come. Now, some have tried to take this 1 Corinthians 6 text and argue that it's not about a gay sex in general. It's about prostitution or it's about pederasty. It's about, and the Bible just has no concept for a, a mutual, uh, consensual, adult, same-sex uh, relationship. But the problem is there's no evidence here in this text or elsewhere for this kind of argument. The text, uh, and when it said men who have sex with men, is referring to two general terms about gay sex. There are other terms that are available to refer to prostitution, but Paul favors uh, terms that are translated referring to, to gay sex in general. Now, some will argue that while the Bible has forbidden homosexual acts, clearly there's a trajectory toward its acceptance. So in the same way that, you know, there's never an outright call for the abolition of slavery in the Bible, we see a movement, a trajectory toward the abolition of slavery when Paul calls uh, to, for, for slaves to be treated as brothers and sisters. But the difficulty is to, to use that trajectory argument, you have to have shifts and changes over time. But what we find with the Bible, it is, it is one in voice with regard uh, to same-sex behavior. This Bible speaks with unmistakable clarity on this topic, and it takes some serious uh, logical, biblical, theological contortions to get it to say differently. In the Garden of Eden, go back to the very beginning, the serpent had two tactics to deceive Adam and Eve. The first was to question God's word. Did God really say? 
And as we think about this topic and as we reflect on what the scriptures have said and have to say, it's my conviction that we have to acknowledge on this topic, yes, God did have something to say, a clear word about our sexuality, which gives to us a universal call for celibacy and singleness and fidelity in heterosexual marriage. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, gosh, that's what I expected you to say all along. Why did you take so long to say it? Well, so what are you asking? That everyone who's gay should just be straight? I'm pretty sure some folks have tried that. And you know people, I know people who've had attractions that they know are misaligned with God's word and cry themselves to sleep at night as a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old asking God to take it away. So nothing. So what am I asking? I've been burdened by this topic for a long time. And I've read a ton of books and blogs and tried to attentively listen to the voices of, of gay Christians and months and years of preparing for this sermon. And one of the books that I read was by uh, Jackie Hill Perry and is called A Gay Girl, Good God. And by the way, there are a ton of books and resources that I can recommend. And uh, Jackie one day shares the story of how she came to Christ. She was sitting alone in her bedroom and she felt like she heard an audible voice speak to her confronting her about her girlfriend. And, uh, and it was like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to choose? This is what she said. To choose God would mean that I had to leave her. And this didn't sound like a fair transaction. In my mind, choosing God was the same as choosing heterosexuality. But I know now what I didn't know then, that God wasn't calling me to be straight. He was calling me to himself. The choice to lay aside sin and take hold of holiness was not synonymous with heterosexuality. From my prior understanding, as told by the few Christians I'd met, to choose God would be to inevitably choose men too, even if my liking of them became a way for me to chase away the gayness without God's help. But God was not a Las Vegas chaplain or an impatient mother intent on sending a man my way to cure me of my homosexuality. He was God, a God after my whole heart, desperate to make it new, committed to making it like him. In my becoming holy as he is holy, I would not be miraculously made into a woman that didn't like women. I'd be made into a woman that loved God more than anything. If marriage ever came or if singleness called me by name, he wanted to guarantee by the work of his hands that both would be lived unto him. She has this conversation in her head. What is God calling me to, to, to like not be gay anymore? No, he's calling you to himself, to love him more than anything. And anything we love from beginning to end in the scriptures, anything you love more than God, your spouse, your agenda, your career, your rights, your identity, your work, anything that you love more than God is an idol. It's idolatry. Anything you say, God, you can have whatever you want of my life except for this part. This part is off limits to you. That thing is for you in idol. And so she's talking to God. She's like, okay, so if I give up the gay thing, if I offer my gayness to you, then I'm good. And then she continued to have some thinking. 
She said, if only I could just be straight and lay aside my homosexuality, then God would accept me and call me his own, I used to think. But this delusion was the belief that only one aspect of my life was worthy of judgment, while the rest deserved heaven. That my other vices were not as bad, they were just struggles that I had to work on instead of repenting. There is a possibility that this kind of self-righteous thinking is why salvation has eluded many same-sex attracted men and women. You hear them say how they've sought God's help in this matter. They've asked him to make them straight, and he has, according to them, denied them access to the miraculous. And because God did not take hold of their gay desires and replace them with straight desires, they have no other choice but to follow where these affections may lead. But the error is this. They've come to God believing that only a fraction of themselves needs saving. They have therefore neglected to acknowledge that the rest of them also needs to be made right. It's like coming to God offering only a portion of their heart for him to have, as if he doesn't have the right to take hold of it all, or as if what's been withheld from him can be satisfied without him. A thorough survey of my own heart, she said, led entirely by the Holy Spirit, allowed me to see what I had never seen, that I not only needed freedom from homosexuality, but from all sin. I was holistically in need of God. As she's processing and as the Spirit is working in her life, she's realizing the problem is way worse than she even realized. It wasn't only that she needed to surrender her sexuality to God. It's that she was being invited to surrender everything to Him. And I think it's critical to note the role of the Holy Spirit in her story. That the Spirit was the one giving her this invitation to surrender it all. It was God's invitation. And she knew, you know, what it would cost. You think, like, logically, why on earth would she believe? Why would she say yes to this? Why would she choose to give it all up? I told you the first approach that the devil took, the serpent took, in deceiving Adam and Eve was to question God's word. The second tactic was much more sinister, and it was to question God's motivation. For Eve, it's, look, God doesn't want you to be powerful like him. He doesn't want you to be as knowledgeable as him. And for many of us, as we think about that thing that God is calling us to lay down our whole lives, we think to ourselves, well, maybe just God doesn't want us to be happy. Maybe he doesn't love you. He doesn't know what it's like. He doesn't get the cost of what he's asking Questioning God's word, questioning God's motivation. And Jackie reflected, he said, I didn't even know God. I didn't know if when I laid my heart bare before him and emptied its contents of every form of safety and love I'd ever known, if he would be large enough to fill it up again. I knew that he'd fill it with himself. He was too jealous of a God not to do so. But would all of that be enough for me? What if he called what he called idols had been joy for me. In him, would I find a better one? Or perhaps would he not merely give me joy, but would he be my joy? I hadn't moved from my spot on my bed. Something holy was happening. Jesus started making sense. <laughs> I said, who gave mercy my address? Who told it how to get to my room? Didn't it know that a sinner lived here? On the way down the hall, shouldn't the smell of idols have kept its feet from moving any closer? 
And then I remembered the one verse of the Bible that I knew by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The same Bible that condemned me held in it the promises that could save me. I just had to believe it. She said to God, what you're calling me to do, I can't do on my own. But I know enough about you to know that you'll help me. I said to God, my new friend. I didn't know that the confession of my inability to please him and the shifting of my back away from the sins I'd previously embraced was repentance, nor did I recognize that my resolve to believe that he could be to me what no one else could was faith, but it was. Without asking me my permission, a good God had come to my rescue. What pushed her over the edge? What compelled her to say yes to Jesus? It was not all of the verses that we talked about prohibiting gay sex. It was not red-faced Christians screaming at her that she was going to hell. It was the truth embedded in the one scripture that she knew that God so loved the world. The Holy Spirit took her to the words of Jesus, compelling her to the love of the Father. It's the Trinity at work, drawing her into a place of belonging in the Godhead. And look, if you don't know, absolutely know in the core of your being that God loves you, that God is trustworthy, that he's good through and through, that all of his intentions towards you are for your flourishing, how could you possibly accept the teaching and the demands of Scripture when it's the opposite of everything your heart and your eyes and your hands and your body have been craving all of your life? How could you trust that he knows your most intimate needs? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Yes, the Bible has a ton to say about how we steward our sexuality. But do you know what else the Bible has to say? Again and again and again, God loves you. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The next one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live like the rest, deserving of wrath. But because of his love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. By grace, you've been saved. Next. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, and deceived and enslaved. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again and again and again, he loves you. God loves you. His intentions toward you are for your good because he loves you. This is what love does. 
He knows how you're made. He knows what you need. He has given everything to rescue you, and he is inviting you, all of you, all of us, to trust him. Not just with your sexuality, our sexuality, but with our everything, our past, our present, our future. It's the love of God confirmed through the person of Jesus, made real in us by the work of the Holy Spirit that enables a person to say yes to the invitation of Jesus. Will you trust me? In church, we fail the world. We fail miserably when we scream the law and we whisper the truth of God's great love for the world. When we condemn any person or any group of people and put stumbling blocks in their way uh, through sideways glances or through jeers, like what are they doing in, in here? And when we do that, we insult the mercy of God and we forget how any of us change. It's God's kindness that it meant, is meant to lead us to repentance. If a person doesn't know that God loves them, there is nothing else to talk about. Now for my gay friends who are listening and who will listen later, you're like, all right, man, maybe I'm tracking, maybe I'm not. What's the point? What do you want me to do? Where do I go from here? And what I want to do quickly is invite you, invite all of us to examine your script. Examine your script. Here's what I mean by this. If you've, if you've ever done theater, you know what it's like to be handed a script. The script tells you your identity, your behavior, your destiny as a character. And all of us are handed cultural scripts all the time that inform how we uh, behave. When a person feels same-sex attraction, what is the script that our culture at large hands to them? I think it looks something like this. This is the cultural gay script. First, same-sex attraction is natural or it's intended by God. This describes the origin. You can just keep going. Experiencing same-sex attraction tells you who you really are. This is about identity. Same-sex activity is the appropriate extension of your identity, which has to do with your behavior. Aligning your behavior with your sexual identity is the key to fulfillment in life. This is regarding purpose. And then finally, you belong with those who affirm your core identity. That has to do with community. Now, for the, if you're a 16-year-old and you're feeling alone with your attractions, you can't talk about this with anybody. Uh, this is a really, really compelling script. This is a script that everyone in popular culture is handing out. It's telling you nobody can judge your behavior because it's just an extension of who you really are, your core identity. But the problem with that first script is that script is not written in light of the person of Jesus Christ and in the story of God. So what would be an alternate Christian script for the person dealing with same-sex attraction? Here's my humble approach at this. The first thing is you were created in the image of God, and he loves you. This is your origin. Because of sin, you have desires that reflect things are not the way it's supposed to be, and same-sex desires are part of this. This represents the challenge, the conflict in the story. Third, you get to choose what you do with your desires. That's behavior. Four, God invites you to discover who you really are, not according to your appetites, but according to who you are in Christ. This is your identity. Five, true fulfillment is found in living out of your identity in Christ, being renewed in his image and in giving your life for the kingdom of God. It's purpose. And then finally, you belong in the body of Christ and you are an integral part of it. That's your community. And for the gay Christian, it means everything that this script ends in community. 
There's a reason they call it the LGBT community, because if you're feeling alone and isolated with your attractions and there is nobody in your family, nobody in your church that you can talk to about it, and you go among this group of people and you're like, you fit? Oh my gosh, imagine the relief. You fit here. For the gay Christian, this script has to end in community because it feels, and the enemy wants it to feel this way, that the invitation of Christ to holiness is necessarily an invitation to loneliness. And for the gay Christian, I heard a gay Christian say, we can live without sex, but we cannot live without intimacy. And so... The community of the church must become an incubator for rich, deep, whole person, spiritual, loving, fun, vulnerable, faithful friendships. A ready answer to the question, where are you going to go on Thanksgiving? A deeply interwoven community, not falsely divided by the single people and the married people, but integrated, woven together. Sharing meals, sharing homes, sharing lives, deliberately making space for each other to find safety and security and intimacy and knownness, belonging and encouragement. A community where you can easily call somebody up at 3 a.m. in desperation and also a community you can call at 3 p.m. to come over and play with the kids and make cookies. And for any one of us to make it in the Christian life, we need this experience of the community of the church. Our experience of the church must be elevated from a Sunday morning thing to a lifestyle where we are deeply interwoven in each other's lives, a way of life built over time through cooperation with the Holy Spirit, through social courage, through deep commitment, and through ready repentance of all the ways in which we are blowing it and showing the love of God to each other. We need to ask ourselves not only what kind of church does it take to support same-sex attracted followers of Christ in the quest for holiness, but also what kind of church is it going to take for any of us to faithfully follow Jesus in 2019 and in this world? What kind of church is it going to take for any of us to say no to sin, to say yes to Jesus, and to pursue God together in becoming a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things? For the gay Christian, this is a long-haul conversation. There are no quick fixes here. But I want you to hear so clear from me that God loves you and that your church loves you. Your church loves you. Don't let yourself be isolated. Don't think we don't care. We're just stupid. <laughs> We're just slow. We love you. I know one sermon's not going to fix everything. This is part one. Part two through infinity is where you stop walking alone and you invite us to, to walk alongside you and we chase you and we become your church family. And for all of us who hunger to see the church at its finest, the way forward for all of us requires us to practice patience, to pray for each other, to create space for people to be known and, and trust you with their full story to find belonging, to share meals, set up a weekly meal. If you have an extra bedroom, invite a single person, invite a gay person to live with you and be part of your family, to put down roots, and you can't know someone else and you can't be known if you don't have time and shared experience together and if you always choose to be anonymous. For any of this to happen, we have to have a rediscovery of the gospel to meet again as if for the first time the God who is the fountain of life and in whose light 
we see light. Glory be to the God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. Help us, Lord Jesus. We need you. Amen.